Well, good morning. If you will, open your Bibles as we study the Bible. Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Be our text starting in verse 16. As we answer the question, is the Bible reliable? If you were invited here as a guest of one of our other faith family members, we're really excited to be in your life today, and I pray that this would inform you in a so crucial of an area, the trustworthiness of Scripture. John Hamilton was a prominent doctor in the Oklahoma City area, and he showered his wife with extravagant gifts. Matter of fact, his first week of marriage to her, he bought her a Porsche. Uh, They went on elaborate Expensive vacations. They lived in a beautiful house on the north side of Oklahoma City. And everything was great until Valentine's Day 2001 and tragedy struck. Um, Per the story of Dr. Hamilton, he ran home between surgeries um, to pick up a date book. And to his horror, he found his wife dead in his bathroom, lying in The floor covered in blood, having been strangled by two neckties and having her head hit, smashed by some form of a blunt object. Hamilton immediately called 911 and frantically started doing CPR on his wife. As the ambulance arrived, he was covered in his wife's blood. And over the course of time, suspicions began to point to the doctor and his wife. And the evidence began to unfold. There was no forced entry. There was no alarm trigger. The attacker apparently knew his victim. Um, more evidence began to surface that the marriage was in trouble. The, the wife who got killed was threatening divorce. Then there was the blood found in the doctor's car. Then there were discrepancies in his alibi. The final piece of evidence was his wife's blood on himself. One crime scene investigator said it was a neon sign pointing to the doctor's guilt. It took the jury less than two hours to convict Dr. Hamilton of first-degree murder and then to sentence him to life in prison. You know, evidence is a powerful thing. It can turn a case one direction or another. And in the case of Scripture, evidence that demands a verdict is available. There are lots of different pieces of evidence in Dr. Hamilton's guilt. But when it comes to investigating the Bible, there are two primary types of evidence that we're going to look at today. This morning, we're answering the question, is the Bible reliable? And these two major forms of evidence in the case against and for Scripture is found in 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me set this up. Peter is writing to these people And he's saying to them in the early part of chapter 1 of of book 2 that they need to live godly lives in light of the persecution that's coming on. They have to live holy or else they will not make it through the persecution. He reminds them that the Spirit of God has been given to them and that the Spirit of God has given them everything they need to live holy, godly lives. That's in verse 3. In verse 4, God, Peter says, has given them precious promises of a transformative life, that they need not stay as they are, that God has given them the resources to grow, to be transformed. He reminds them in this chapter of what those qualities of godliness look like. 
right? What are the qualities of a godly life? In chapter one of Second Peter, it's faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and godliness in and of itself, love. He reminds them that godliness matters because Jesus is coming back. Chapter one of Second Peter is about the second coming of Christ. Well, here's the problem. There were false teachers who confused the people, arguing that Jesus wasn't really coming back. And so Peter, knowing his time was short and that his death was looming, presented two pieces of evidence of the reliability of the message that he was giving and the Bible as a whole. So we're going to start in verse 16. You read silently as I read out loud. Verse 16, for we did not follow, Peter says, cleverly devised tales or myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make it up. It's not a myth. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, for when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such as an utterance that was made to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard that utterance made from heaven when we were with him. We were eyewitnesses. We were right there. We heard it on that holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more certain to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Like a prosecuting attorney, Peter makes a case about the reliability of the message based on two pieces of evidence. I don't know if you caught it, but they're pretty obvious. Number one is eyewitness testimony. Say that with me. Eyewitness testimony. In history, in philosophies of history, this is where you begin. Was there anybody there that saw it and wrote about it? And in the case of eyewitness testimony in a court or in a newspaper, it's, it's still, that's the primary evidence. Secondly, it's authoritative documents. Not just eyewitness testimony, but are there trustworthy documents? In his book, Taking God at His Word, author Kevin DeYoung writes, quote, if you want to prove your point in a court of law, you need eyewitness testimonies or trustworthy sources. The apostle Peter had both. All right, so let's take a look at these pieces of evidence. Eyewitness testimony. Of course, I'm pointing to verse 16 here, right? Right at the beginning of 16. And then in a few verses later, he says something similar. But he says in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. If you have a pen out, I'd encourage you to circle the word tales. Because Peter's making it clear from the get-go, from the top, that the testimony of Jesus was not some myth. It wasn't some legend. It wasn't some tale. Liberal theologian Rudolf Bultmann went so far as to say the Bible was full of myth. It was full of, of uh, myths to the point that the essential truth gets clouded and so you've got to demythologize. You've got to pull those myths out. And that is a very popular notion today among atheists and agnostics. They say, quote, the stories of the Bible are legends, they're myths, they're tales written hundreds, maybe thousands of years 
after the facts, and they might have an element of truth in them, but they are certainly not true. It has been a popular thought that the cross of Jesus was not actually true. It was a myth, a legend, and it serves as a metaphor of how we can overcome our hardships. Just bear it and grin and go through it. The word tell in Scripture, the word myth, sometimes translated myth, is always used negatively. And it's in opposition to the word truth. So sometimes myths are they're opposed to the idea of what's true. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I think it's on the screen. For the times will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desire. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside, say the word, to myths. Peter's making it clear. He said, what I'm telling you about Jesus in 2 Peter chapter 1, what I'm telling you about Jesus is not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not some fanciful tale plucked out of my imagination. These truths that Peter is talking about in 2 Peter chapter 1, these are directly sourced in his own personal eyewitness testimony. So go back to 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 17. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And verse 18 is on the screen. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What was he talking about here? What's, what is this? It's this eyewitness testimony of what? The Mount of Transfiguration. Peter's describing an event that occurred about nine months before Jesus died. Peter, James, and John, the three closest disciples of Jesus, went up with him on top of a mountain. And in the course of this, really a bookend in Jesus' life, God the Father speaks again. God the Father spoke out of heaven at his baptism. Remember that? John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus and he comes out of the water, a dove descends out of the heavens and God says, Listen, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Here he says, at the end of his life, this is my beloved son, listen to him. There's a great bookend of Jesus' God the Father's affirmation of Jesus' ministry. He came to speak and you need to listen to him. In this case, they go on top of this mountain and the glory of Jesus is revealed. It's as if God kind of parts back the, the physical curtain covering, dividing the physical from the spiritual. And he parts it back and the glory of God is revealed. And in the story there in the Gospels, Jesus' clothes are turned bright with light. His eyes are like fire. His, his face is radiant as the sun. And that voice says, this is my son. This is what he really looks like. And you better listen to him. Peter is saying, quoting this story, he's pointing to this story. He's saying, we didn't make this stuff up. We were there. We saw him with our own eyes. We witnessed the event, and we know what we saw. The testimony we read about Jesus in the Gospels is a testimony given by eyewitnesses who saw these things firsthand. They knew Jesus personally. They heard Jesus personally. They heard him preach. They, they saw him die personally. They saw the empty tomb personally. They saw the resurrection personally. So Peter can declare in Acts chapter 2, verse 2, God raised this Jesus back to life, and we were all witnesses to the fact. He's writing to people immediately after his resurrection. You saw him. I saw You saw him. He was there. We were there. We're not preaching something that we made up. We saw this. Acts chapter 4, verse 20. 
Judge for yourselves, Peter says, whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we can't help speaking about what we have not have seen and heard. We just can't stop talking about it. We've got to speak it. And there are many more verses that declare the Gospels were written by eyewitness accounts. Paul mentions 14 eyewitnesses. And then he talks about it later that there were 500 people that saw Jesus resurrected. He encouraged skeptics, ask him. He said to skeptics, ask me what I saw, I'll tell you. Matthew and Mark list women who were a part of the early Christian movement and that witnessed Jesus in numerous times. Luke adds even more. Turn to Luke chapter one. Just look at this real quick. I remember when I first read Luke one in college and I thought, wow, the Bible has trustworthiness. It has people that took their time and they carefully compiled and God used these men and under the inspiration of the Spirit to write his words, but they did research and they didn't just write what other people, they wrote what they owned, they experienced themselves. Look at Luke chapter one, verse one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were, what does it say? Eyewitnesses and servants. They, they didn't just see it, they served it. Right? These, are, these, are, these aren't just people that saw it, these are believers in it. I mean, they saw it and they, they believed it and they worshiped. They, they worked for it. This word moved them, changed them. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully. Do you see that phrase? Luke, this Gentile doctor, says, I have investigated everything very carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. The name Theophilus means lover of God. Was he a real person or is he just writing this kind of like a circular letter most likely it was a real person. But the idea here is he's writing to lovers of God and he says, I have done the research. We have eyewitness accounts. Go back to Second Peter. So he adds more, but you might think, well, that is what they say happened, but other religions, they claim also to have certain experiences. Listen, this is one thing here that is so important to understand. I cannot overstate this enough. Christianity has always been tied to history. The message of Jesus has always been rooted in historical fact. Throughout the Gospels, you find historical facts, times, dates, names, locations, corroborating their testimony. Classic historian Colin Hemer painstakingly combed through the book of Acts, and he found 84 identifiable facts that are confirmed with secular, historical, and archaeological research today. 84 confirmable facts. The scripture is rooted in history. I'm, I'm wanting to lead next year, 2017, a, another tour of Israel. If you're interested in going with me, let me know. But when we go to Israel, as I went about five years ago, there's digs everywhere. Archaeological digs all over Israel every year making more and more discoveries that substantiate biblical facts. And there are at least 10 non-Christian ancient writers within the first 150 years of the life of Jesus giving very similar information about Jesus. Peter said, I'm not giving you myths. I'm giving you my word. I saw what I saw. And these men chose to die holding on to what they saw rather than deny the truth. 
and die and live. That's how much they were servants of it. So number one, eyewitness accounts. Number two, trustworthy sources. That's where Peter goes next. Look at verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. If you have a pen, circle the word prophetic word, the phrase prophetic word. Peter's saying what what we saw, we experienced, but it had already been told to us through the prophetic word, which confirmed it even more. What is he saying? He says, basically, the hundreds of years before this came to be, it was prophesied. The prophetic word he's referring to here is the Old Testament scripture. He calls it in the next verse, the prophecy of scripture. I love the word here that's often used of scripture. It's the word graphe in Greek. It means that which is written down. That God went on record in ink and pen hundreds of years before this stuff. We experienced it. We had eyewitness accounts, but what made it even more authoritative in our hearts is God prophesied before. In Peter's mind, these experiences were long foretold before through the written scripture. He had complete confidence in the word, so much so that he said it's like a lamp. Look at verse 19. It's a lamp that shines light in a dark place. That's trustworthy. You go into a dark place with a trustworthy lamp. He said it's like the morning star that gives direction and guidance consistently. Sailors can sail by night at the morning star because it's consistently trustworthy. Scriptures are a trustworthy source of truth. So why did he take so much confidence in the scripture? Well, keep reading. This is on the screen. Why don't you read this out loud with me? All right, the next two verses. All right. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The word moved by, he takes a Greek word that was used of sailors sailing by the winds, that the winds blew the sails. And he says, the way that they came up with scripture is they didn't come up with it on themselves, by themselves. This wasn't their initiative. Peter was saying the words of scripture were not produced by the will of man. No one decided to go into the woods and, 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 and write the Bible. Nobody said, I'm going to take a week off and we're going to write an extra book for the Bible. No, God moved in these men's hearts to write They were directed by the Holy Spirit, superintended by the Holy Spirit, using their personality, their grammar, their vocab, their experiences, but nonetheless blowing into the cells of their initiative to make this book come to be. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said in 2 Timothy 3.16, for all the Bible is breathed out by God. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that all men and women of God are equipped, ready for what God has for them. Ready for every good work. All scripture was given to men by the agency of the Holy Spirit. He is the fuller author. Right? It's a dual authorship, but the fuller author, the, the, the larger author of scripture is the Holy Spirit. It is trustworthy then. It is reliable. Christians have a high view of scripture this listen listen this is absolute truth given from God himself that's what it teaches about itself and that's what so many of us have come to know in our own experience not just with eyewitness accounts and trustworthy documents we have a high view of scripture now you might be thinking 
Why do we believe the Bible so much? Isn't it common knowledge that the Bible is just no different from other religious writings? Isn't it common knowledge that the Bible has been changed and tampered with, right? Over the years, isn't it common knowledge that the Bible has errors? How can you say the Bible is true and trustworthy and reliable? Let me spend the rest of our time today answering those kinds of questions. I've got four lines of reasoning that if I'm teaching this for a, for a university, this takes about nine hours to walk through these four. But in the process, we're going to do it in about 15 minutes. Number one, the Bible is unique and a remarkable book. It's a unique and a remarkable book. You recognize, if you've ever been in any kind of Bible education, that the Bible is actually 66 different books written over the span of 1,500 years, written by 40 different authors. No other book took that long with that many writers to write. 40 different authors from all walks of life who wrote the Bible. They, 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 different walks of life, you know they have different perspectives, and these people absolutely did. The Bible was written by kings and servants and philosophers and fishermen and poets and doctors and military leaders and herdsmen and first century IRS agent. The authors come from different places like deserts and dungeons and palaces and islands and battlefields and hillsides and prison cells. They wrote on three different continents, Europe and Asia and Africa, 16 different countries, three different languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. Now, their writings cover hundreds of controversial subjects, and they talk with perfect unity about those subjects. Just think about that. 1,500-year book, 40 different authors, three different languages, three different continents, and they write with perfect unity on the most controversial subjects ever put before humanity. If I were to pass out a three-by-five card and just say, tell us how you think we, our nation ought to go under the next president, we get <laughs> probably almost 300 people here, 250 people, we get about as many answers. Tell me about controversy about immigration or transgender issues. Tell me what you think. And we would not all agree, absolutely. Yet, yet when it comes to the Bible, 40 different authors, various backgrounds, living in diverse places, speak with perfect unity on the most controversial subjects. The The Bible is a supernatural, remarkable, unified story of how God has worked throughout history to restore his relationship with human beings. In the Old Testament, he said someone's coming to restore that relationship. In the Gospels, he's arrived. And in the Epistles, he's coming again. Read it from cover to cover, and you find one hero, the Messiah. You find one problem, sin. You find one villain, Satan. You find one purpose, salvation. The only reasonable answer to the amazing unity of Scripture is that there is one master architect behind it all. It's so unique. Unlike the Book of Mormon or the Quran, the Bible wasn't written by just one person starting a religious movement. The Bible is unique in its nature. You know, it's also very unique in its relevance. It's extremely relevant. There's never been a book like it. It's as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. It's incredibly relevant. The book has timeless answers. 
for marriage and parenting and working and managing your emotions, handling your money, breaking bad habits, finding fulfillment in life, experiencing God's forgiveness, and of course, how to receive as a free gift eternal life. And in various ways, over 3,000 times, it says, thus says God. It purports to be the word of God. And it's incredibly relevant. So number two, beyond its unique and remarkable nature, it is also a book that has enjoyed long-standing popularity. There's never been a book like it in terms of its popularity since 1450 and Gutenberg's press started cranking out Bibles. It has been the bestseller on the planet every year since then. It now sells for money every year between 30 to 60 million copies. Now that's just what it sells. There's organizations on the planet like the United Bible Society, a network of organizations that in 2000 alone, the year, one year, 2000 alone, 633 million portions of scripture were cast to the planet to witness among the mission fields of our planet. 633 million. The Bible is the most translated book in history in its popularity. Over 2,500 languages on the planet have the Bible in their language. And it's still counting as new languages are added. It is the single most popular book in history. It is the single most translated book in history. And it is the most smuggled book in history. In some places in the world, like communist areas or Islamic areas, people risk their lives to get a hold of this book. Let me pause here. We are indebted to a man by the name of Jerome. In about the fourth century, he saw the Greek language and the fact that the language of the people was Latin and he saw the power of the scriptures. And so he took the Greek and turned it into Latin. He translated it, right? He translated it. Then came along about a thousand years later, a man by the name of John Wycliffe, who a following in the, in the footsteps of Jerome said, People need the language in the Bible in their own language. And he translated the Bible from Latin to English. He was accused of, a, of being a heretic. He suffered much persecution. And they, anybody that pulled it off their shelf or grabbed one of these Bibles, they were threatened with persecution as well. And then came along William Tyndall, about 200 years after Wycliffe, who took the Greek, the Hebrew, the Latin, and he translated uh, that into English as well. He tried to complete all the Old and the New Testament, but he, he died before completing the Old Testament. He died in 1536. He was executed, and his body was publicly burned for translating the Bible. His associate, John Rogers, completed his work and finished the translation of the Old Testament. And you know how the word, the world, uh, applauded him? They executed him as well. The most smuggled the most burned and banned book in history. The point is that the Bible you have in your hands right here is a result of men and women who laid down their lives so you could get a hold of it. Far be it from us to take this word and leave it on the back seats of cars and on dashboards and on coffee tables and spend no time in it. People died, literally hundreds of people, so that you could have a translated Bible into English. And we owe them that. No other book has had that kind of scrutiny. No other book has been that ridiculed, criticized, misinterpreted, banned and burned like the Bible. 
Kings and emperors and dictators and governments have all tried to wipe it out of existence. But it just keeps on living. It just keeps on changing lives. One of the funny footnotes in history is French philosopher Voltaire. He's a skeptic. Uh, When he died uh, in 1778, he said right before he died, quote, within 100 years after my death, the Bible will be a forgotten book said that in 1778. When Voltaire died, they auctioned off his home. You know who bought his home? The French Bible Society bought his home. (laughs) The Bible outlives its pallbearers. You can carry it to its death and it outlives its pallbearers. Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will never fail. It will never pass away. Listen to Bernard Ram. He adds, a thousand times, Over the centuries, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, the flowers ordered, the inscription placed on the tombstone, the eulogy written for the Bible. Somehow, the corpse never stays put. Number three, the Bible is extremely authentic and accurate. Now, I place this in this order because this is how I teach it, because this is how I lived it. I first acknowledged as a young man of faith the incredible, supernatural, remarkability of Scripture. It was unique. There's nothing like it. And then I recognized how many people had Bibles. And I saw, you know, how how just in terms of its popularity, how people laid down their lives for it. But then I came to these last two points, and it began to really become the thing that lifted me up to my current faith in what the scriptures have. And this is huge, that it is unique in the sense that it is authentic and accurate. It's incredibly authentic and accurate. Let's talk about those. Let's talk about the authenticity of the Bible. Biblical and secular scholars agree that the original documents of the New Testament were written in the first century. Within 30 to 60 years of what had happened. The biographies of Jesus written within 30 to 60 years. The epistles written within 30 or 60 years of when those things had happened. Now, put that in comparison. The writings of Buddha, in comparison, were penned 500 years after Buddha died. The followers of Buddha penned the documents of Buddhism 500 years. Put that in, into comparison with um, Caesar and the Gaelic Wars. Those Tomes were penned a thousand years after the death of Caesar. A thousand years later. Take Homer's Odyssey, written 2,200 years after Homer died. 2,200, 2,200. And all those are considered authentic documents. Every one of those are considered trustworthy documents. And the Bible was written 30 to 60 years after it happened. The accuracy of the Bible is, is indisputable. The vast number of ancient manuscripts of the New Testament are, are reinforce its accuracy. There are 5,700 copies of the Greek New Testament in existence today. There are 10,000 copies of the Bible in Latin. There are 15,000 other copies in other languages. And we have close to 30,000 copies of fragments of the New Testament today. 30,000. Now compare that to other ancient manuscripts. It is a virtual avalanche of documentation. Most ancient works only have a handful of manuscripts. 
we have 30,000 manuscripts. When you add that to the ancient secular historians, the Roman military correspondence, the early church fathers that all quote and point to Scripture, when you add it to that, it's, it's just mind-boggling. It is mind-blowing how accurate the Scriptures are. You know, many purport, they say, when you talk about accuracy, they say, isn't the Bible full of errors? And no one has put this view forward more than Bart Ehrman, New Testament scholar, Department of Religion Studies at University of North Carolina. He is a self-proclaimed agnostic, and he wrote a book in 2006 called Misquoting Jesus. And in this book, it became a bestseller for many months in America, he says that the Bible is full of mistakes and full of errors, and they've occurred, most of them, because it's just been copied down. But is that true? Here are the facts. Here's what we know. It is true that we no longer have the original manuscripts. We call those the autographs. They have decayed long ago. They've disappeared. Okay, we we don't have. Those parchments decayed. But what we have is thousands of ancient manuscripts that some are the second or third level copies. But what we, in those many manuscripts, we have comparables. And it's unbelievable how clearly accurate they are compared to each other. It's also true that there are variances in those manuscripts. There are some differences between those manuscripts. However, the variances, these differences, don't call into question the accuracy of the Bible. Take, take two lines of reasoning. Number one, the reason it doesn't call into question the accuracy is the vast number of manuscripts. We have today, it's easy to point out variances and to study them because we have so many thousands of manuscripts. Number two, there's a vast majority of variances, but they're usually spelling errors and syntax errors. When I graduated seminary, they said those variances accounted for 2%. So 98% of your Bible has absolutely no question to it that we have the original manuscripts. 2%. Now, as of 2010, they're saying it's down to 1% because of the manuscripts we're finding in archaeological digs. We're finding more and more. So to say that the Bible is filled with errors and it can't be trusted is simply not true. What is true is that in the diversity of time, the diversity of authorship, the diversity of language, the fact that it does not contradict itself the fact that the message of Jesus is clear and compelling, the fact that it has endured so long is mind-blowing. Only God could do that. That is supernatural in its nature, the book is, the Bible is. The Bible is the most scrutinized and verified book in the world. And you may say, well, okay, the Bible's unique and it's remarkable, it's popular, it's accurate, it's authentic, but is it true? This fourth line of evidence for me uh, determined my love and trust in Scripture among all others, is that the Bible is supernaturally prophetic and potent. Its power in my life and in your lives and in people's lives throughout centuries is unexplainable other than supernatural. Let's take these two. Number one, it's prophetic. The Bible is unique in that it contains prophecy, sometimes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, sometimes written, written hundreds of years. Daniel, nine, seven to nine hundred years before Jesus comes. And they aren't just general prophecies. They are specific. 
what he'd be like, how he'd die, the various elements of the crucifixion, specific about geographies and, and nations. The book of Daniel talks about the rise of kings and gives descriptions of what these kings and these nations would be. It's very, very specific. Prophecies about the rise and fall of nations, kings, and ultimately about the Messiah. Now, what about the potency of the Bible? The message of Jesus has been transforming people's lives for over 2,000 years. Peter, a normal fisherman, turned into a, because of Jesus' work in his life, turned into a powerful leader of the movement. All those who heard the gospel were changed in the early church, even though they, they wouldn't deny Jesus, even in light of persecution. That's how much they were changed. changed. Today, people's lives are tra- changed simply by being, just reading scripture. Your life has been changed if you are a reader of scripture. I, I've traveled to some remote places in the world and I have friends who travel to remote places in the world and without fail, the thing that people on the fringes of, our, of the frontier of the mission field, the thing that they want more than anything else is a Bible in their language because of its power. Why, why is it so powerful? It's because God speaks through it. English preacher Charles Spurgeon said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the, let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. You just unleash the word of God. It's like a grenade in the hands of a human. It is so powerful. You pull the pin, you walk away, and you let it explode. The message of the Bible doesn't just transform pe- people, it transforms cultures champions freedom, champions the value of every person, champions compassion. It lifts up Christ. In the early church that was formed, hospitals and orphanages to the abandoned began to spring up. It was Christians who cared for the homeless and the poor around the world, followers of Jesus who championed the cause of the marginalized, the enslaved, the abused, the unwanted. It was Christians who in our culture across this planet have been the ones that promoted education and universities. In schools, there is something powerful about the word of God. It changes hearts. It changes lives. God speaks as the word speaks. It speaks in such a way that as it speaks, God himself speaks and it moves. Jesus, uh, one of the writers of the New Testament said, it is the living word. Paul said, it's the living word. Able to cut through all the, the mess to get to the heart of an issue. It's unbelievable. Listen, God has written a book for you pen and paper so that it could be reproducible, it could be, you could protect it, it could be preservable, and it could also be repeatedly studied. Why didn't he just consistently speak out of heaven in audible voices to everybody? So that it could be written, it could be repeatable, and it could be studied. God gave you a book. He has put in writing his very words and his promises to you. He has preserved them for you. And many in many people's lives across this planet, they have copies. You know, I've taught in lectures about the Reformation Church during the Middle Ages, and I, I love this story. To end with, I love the story of Ehrlich Zwingli. At the time of the Middle Ages, Christians did not have a copy of the Bible in their own language. They, they never heard it preached. They couldn't read it. They had no access to it. Ulrich Zwingli began to study the Bible for himself, and he saw the power, the potency of it come alive in his life. Convicted by the power of the gospel to transform, he committed to no longer preach anything but scripture. He started in 
in Matthew, and he just started preaching. This is very unpopular to the point of being persecuted. He started preaching it. He said God's word, quote, is like a mighty unstoppable river. It can be preached with utmost confidence, for it is God's effective power to create and to save and to change the world. But Zwingli was absolutely opposed in his preaching of the Bible. Ultimately, an army came against him, and him and his men were pierced through by the spear, and they were killed. He stands in a long line of so many who gave their lives, gave their lives so you and I could have the word of God. That's how powerful it is. That's why it's so tragic for you to have a copy of God's word, to sit it down and not spend time in it, or to pick it up and not do anything about it, to not obey it. My prayer for you is that you would spend time with it and obey it. Be not just under it on a Sunday morning, but be in it on a Monday morning. Beyond a reasonable doubt? I think so. When Susan Hamilton's case came before that group of jurors, when it came before them, what they had is they had evidence. They, had, they weren't there when, when John killed his wife, but they had evidence. And through the weight of the evidence, they didn't have to take a leap of faith. They made a decision that was beyond a reasonable doubt. In many ways, trusting the Bible is much the same. Peter said we can trust the testimony of Jesus because it is based on true eyewitnesses and trustworthy documents. We can trust it. But now it's up to you to weigh the evidence and make a decision. Peter's words, I hope, will ring in your ears that you will do well to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place. Here's the one single message of the Bible. God loves you and he's written you a love letter. And he's done everything possible to try to get you to respond to him. And he's gone on record. He's signed on the dotted line about how he thinks about you and what he's done for you. And he wants you to spend time with him. And so you live by the book. You spend time with the book. God sent his son to die in your place to take away your sins so you could be reconciled to him. Jesus is on every page and it's all about him. The question is, and we'll look at it next week, do you know him personally? Can you know Jesus personally? I hope you do. But if you don't, invite him into your life tonight, today, right here. Pray with me. Say, dear Jesus, I feel the power of your word coming into my ears and then settling in my heart. I feel it. I'm experiencing it. That potency that this pastor just talked about. It is, it is there. Lord, thank you for giving us a word, your word. And Lord Jesus, I want a relationship with you. I want a real, authentic relationship with you. So I invite you to come into my life and spend time with me to save my soul, to remove all barriers of my sin and my shame and my death. But I don't just want fire insurance, hell insurance, sin insurance. I want you. I, I see that you love me and I want to grow in my love towards you. Thank you for giving me a Bible. 
May we be very clearly committed to it. That if persecution arises like it did in Zwingli's life, like it did in Wycliffe's life, like it did in so many people's lives throughout history, like it's doing in people around the world today where it costs them blood and imprisonment to be followers of you, that if that happens here, if that happens in our lives, that there will be plenty of evidence to convict us that we are lovers of Jesus that there would be an evidence that would demand a verdict about our own lives and our relationship with you. But thank you for making the evidence so clear, so trustworthy. Thank you for the word. In Jesus' name, amen.